Well, good morning. How about a little clapping this morning? I love that video because that video tells me partly what God did at Burning Bush Baptist Church last year. You know, there was so much more that went on, like we made cuts and cuts and cuts, and then even like Friday night, uh, Joseph cut, he did the video, he had to cut another hundred pictures out of it because it was, it was just too long. But there were so many things. I think sometimes we forget about that. All the things that go on in a year and all the things that God does. And I don't think we celebrate those types of things enough. And kind of thinking along those lines, let me say this. What God did at Burning Bush is not about us. It's about Him. And it's about what He did through us. It's because you folks allow God to work in your life. Because you leverage the influence that God has given you. Because you allow the love of Christ to flow through you. Because so many of you practice biblical generosity. And we want to make sure this morning God gets the glory for everything that has happened. And what I would like for you to understand today is what God has done through Burning Bush Baptist Church is just a drop in the bucket, so to speak, in what he has done in church with a capital C, talking about the universal church, talking about all churches. The church is remarkable. The church is unbelievable. And to help you understand how remarkable it is, and also the responsibility we have, I want to do something a little bit different this morning as we begin week three of our series, I Love Our Church. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to use your imagination and go with me back in history. We are going to be time travelers. So I want you in your mind to pick five of your favorite friends or family members or some kind of combination thereof. And the seven of us, we are going to go back in history to Rome, the city of Rome. The year is 82 A.D., when we show up, we arrive at the forum. As you can imagine, probably partly because of our dress, people are amazed to see time travelers in Rome in 82 AD. Domitian is the emperor. He is the brother of Emperor Titus, who has now passed away, but Titus was the one that was responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem. So Domitian is his brother. Immediately when we arrive, word kind of arrives back to Domitian that these time travelers have arrived from the 21st century. And of course, the emperor is very curious about us, and he sends someone to greet us and to bring us to him. And so we are going to go from the Forum to the Colosseum. 
And at this time, there's this elaborate party that's going on to celebrate the end of the hundred days of games. It's like the mother of all parties, and that happens to be where Domitian is at this particular moment. So as our guide is taking us from the Forum to the Colosseum, we pass under the arch of Titus. At this particular time, that arch is only about 12 years old. And it commemorates his brother, Domitian's brother's Titus' victory in Jerusalem in the destruction of the temple. And as we walk under the arch, we look up and we see this relief that depicts the looting of the temple there in Jerusalem. And we can see the Romans taking the valuables out of the temple. Eventually, we arrive at the Colosseum and we're escorted to a VIP section. And we are rock stars. I mean, everybody's excited to see us. Politicians are greeting us. Roman citizens of every kind. Celebrities in the city of Rome. Slaves. And then we see the emperor himself. He's seated on a temporary throne there in the Colosseum. He's surrounded by his praetorian guard, dressed in purple, swords at their side. We sit down for an unbelievable feast. Most of the foods we're not very familiar with. Exotic meats, eggs from all different kinds of birds, enough wine to float a ship. And so you ask for a, for a glass of water. And I remind you, this water would probably kill you. And we don't drink wine. I mean, you guys know me better than that. And so we just go thirsty. Eventually, we finish our meal. And Domitian wants to speak with us. And the only reason that we're able to communicate with him is because I took Latin when I was in eighth grade. And you thought Latin was a dead language, right? And uh, so I begin to talk with him, and, and you don't know what either one of us are saying, and you're just kind of watching facial expressions and body language, trying to get some idea of what is happening. And the emperor asked me to give him a report. He wants to know the state of the Roman Empire in the 21st century. I tell you what he wants to know. And you look at me with great concern because you and I both realize that if I don't get this right, we could become part of the blood and gore on the Colosseum floor. So I begin. I tell him before I can answer that question about what the Roman Empire is like in the 21st century, I need to go back in a little bit of more recent history to his day, history that has just recently taken place as far as he's concerned. I mentioned the arch that we traveled under and about his brother's great victory in Jerusalem. And I say, this is going to be tough for you to understand. And that while Titus achieved a great military success, this group called Christians, sometimes referred to as the way, Remnants of that group survived. They were founded 
by Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And not only Domitian did they survive, but eventually the Roman Empire realized that the Roman gods were no gods at all. And a future emperor would destroy all the Roman gods. And he would destroy and abolish the priesthood. And he would do away with animal sacrifices. Well, at this point, the crowd erupts. Members of the Praetorian Guard begin to lower their hands toward their swords. And you are starting to panic, thinking, What did I say? Domitian leans in. He raises his hand to silence everybody and he asks, How can this be? My voice is trembling a little bit and I say, For you to understand, I need to go back in history a little bit further. Fifty years ago, a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth appeared on the banks of the Jordan River. Jesus announced a new kingdom, one like the world had never seen before. And I kind of continue, he was a miracle worker. Large crowds came to see him. People wanted to hear the truths that he was telling, and they wanted to see the healings and, and the miracles that were taking place. And Domitian, I know that you're familiar with the historian Josephus who has recorded all of this. And I also see over here on my right, Senator Tactius, who is also a well-known historian. And I know that he can also verify my account of what I am telling you about Jesus of Nazareth. I said eventually Jesus kind of got sideways with his own people and they had him arrested. And then they condemned him. And he was crucified by your governor. Pontius Pilate. It was the worst kind of beating and death. But that wasn't the end. In fact, it was almost like the beginning. That man, Jesus, was buried according to Jewish customs and placed in a tomb and a large stone was rolled in front of it. But after three days, that stone was rolled back away. And Jesus wasn't there. And Domitian looks at me in a very curious way as, he, as I kind of continue the narrative. I said, at first people thought it was grave robbers, but that didn't make sense. Jesus was just a poor rabbi and, and no items were buried with him. And besides, it wasn't items that were missing. It was his body that was gone. And within, within days, there were rumors among the Galileans and in the Galilean area, first by individuals and then by small groups and eventually larger groups and dozens and hundreds claimed they had seen this Jesus of Nazareth still alive. And his resurrection, it galvanized the courage of his followers. And they began to spread the good news of Jesus just like he said they would. And he preached like they preached, that the kingdom of God has come. And these followers declared that this rabbi was Jesus, their Lord. Many of his followers... They were arrested and they were beaten and they were put to death, but they insisted that he was God. 
Their confidence was convincing and contagious because they had seen the resurrected Jesus. Mustering a little more courage, I say, and Domitian, you know this. In your city, there are freedmen, there are slaves, there are women, and there are men, and there are children who are gathering today to worship this Jesus of Nazareth. And sir, with all due respect, for the next 230 years, those that succeed you are going to try to stamp out this group called the Way. But they won't succeed. And Domitian, even though Jesus never visited your city in the 21st century, his name and his likeness adorn the city of Rome. And as hard as it is for you to imagine, the very gate that you entered in today, the emperor's gate of the Colosseum, there's going to be a cross there. Not to represent the harshness of Rome, but to represent the love of Jesus Christ displayed on a cross. As I stop talking, a hush falls over the crowd. They cannot imagine a cross representing love instead of the punishment of Rome. They can't believe that all their temples would be destroyed, that the priesthood would be abolished, that animal sacrifices wouldn't be allowed anymore, that their God, Jupiter, would be replaced by this guy, Jesus, that they executed 50 years ago, and now he's being worshipped. They can't wrap their minds around that. As I resume talking, I tell the emperor, that he is going to be known for his reign of terror. And I also tell him that most of the Roman emperors in our modern day textbooks of the 21st century get about a paragraph, except for one, Caesar Augustus. And he's the exception because he's tied to the Jesus story and the birth of Jesus Christ. And I also remind him and tell him, and Jesus' words... They'll be collected and they'll be published and spread throughout the world for generations to come. And I tell him, as hard as it is for you to believe, Jesus of Nazareth will be the most influential and revered man that has ever lived. And Domitian, this future of your glorious empire, Rome is not eternal, but there is a God who reigns eternal. It was, your, it was his temple that your brother destroyed. And it was his son that your governor crucified. But in the end, it was his sovereign purposes that your empire advanced. And then I sit down. And there is silence. This is unimaginable. What I have just said. Is beyond offensive. We all wonder, are we going to die? Then slowly, slowly, the emperor begins to smile. And the people in the crowd begin to smile because after all, they take their cues from the emperor. 
And then his smile breaks out into a hearty laugh. And he raises his cup and he says, A toast to the storytellers from another time. That was brilliant. You had me up until the end. And then I knew it was just a fanciful tale. I want you to be my guest again tomorrow night. And no fairy tales tomorrow night. I want you to tell me what becomes of our great empire in the 21st century. Folks, today, here's what I want you to know. What happened as far as the church goes from a human perspective was impossible. It was inconceivable. It was unfathomable. What has happened with the church, no one could plan, no one could orchestrate, no one could imagine. But what happened was exactly what Jesus predicted. In an area around Jerusalem, there was a group of people with no future, just poor people, just folks trying to survive under the heel of the occupation of the Romans with no hope, overtaxed, misrepresented by their own religious leaders. And Jesus said this to them, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Or maybe your Bible says, And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus said, I am going to build my church. The Greek word there is ekklesia. It means a called out gathering. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my movement. I'm going to build my gathering. And even death cannot stop what is going to happen. And to these poor folks, I imagine those words sounded hollow, sounded so thin, sounded like pie in the sky. Sounded impossible standing under that desert sun. But they were the truth. The church has stood no matter what. God showed up and God had a plan. And his plan for spreading the good news of Jesus Christ is the church. And what God is doing here in Burning Bush Baptist Church is just a small part of that plan. But it's such a privilege to be a part of that. It's what drives me. It's what gets me up in the morning. It's what keeps me going when things get tough. Because all of us, we have time and we have opportunity. And we've been invited to this grand narrative that no one could have imagined. It is literally unfathomable from a historical point of view what has happened with the church? In fact, I came across this guy by the name of Jordan P. B. Peterson. He has this book out, and he's talking about what the church has done, not from a spiritual perspective, so to speak, but he's talking about how it has lasted from an historical standpoint. And this is what he says. He says, Christianity achieved well nigh the impossible. 
The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing the slave and the master and the commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. The implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. And he continues, It is a miracle that the domination and ownership of another person was wrong. We forget that the opposite was true throughout most of human history. Do you see what he's saying? That, the, that, that basically Christianity turned all that upside down. Throughout most of human history, the one with the gold made the rules. Might made right. It was human nature to enslave groups of people. Women had no rights. Children were looked at as commodities. But when Jesus came, he turned all of that on its head and he turned the world upside down. With his offer of eternal life. And you and I, we are stewards. The caretakers of the message as part of his church. It was inconceivable that all of this could have been done by a Jewish rabbi. Except it was done by God. And here's what concerns me. If we take this all for granted, it might vanish from our culture. It might not be there for our children and our grandchildren. There's a popular, state, popular statement right now. Make America great again. And I'm not using that as a political statement this morning, and I'm not using it as an endorsement of Republicans, so please don't take it that way. I'm just using the statement, and some of you might want to know what the again means, and rightfully so. But of course, we all want our nation to be great. And we want it to be as great as possible. But the key to making our nation great is a thriving church. A thriving church that impacts the culture by sharing the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to make our nation great. And you know, Jesus redefined what great is. The disciples, when they were with him, they wanted to know who was great. They knew who number one was. That was Jesus. But who's number two, and who's number three, and who's number four, and number five? You know, when Jesus, when you take off your robe, and, and that shirt on the front has a big M for Messiah, and on the back it has a K for King, we want to know then who's going to sit on your left, and who's going to sit on your right. And Jesus basically said, you guys just need to sit down. You don't get it. That's the way that it works with the rest of the world, but not my kingdom. Don't you remember what I said? Even the Son of Man, even I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. 
And he says to these guys, if you are up for that, we will change the world. And they did. And they did. At one point he put it this way in the book of Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how then can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And as Jesus voiced that they were the salt of the earth, I can just see these people and hear them thinking, Jesus, are you kidding me? We're not the salt of anything. No one even knows we're here. We're poor Judeans, poor Galileans. We're not even a sovereign state. But Jesus told them otherwise. If it loses its saltiness, if you decide that you are going to live for yourself, that you are making yourself great, then you lose the opportunity to make a difference in the kingdom. And he elaborates on that in verse 14, same passage, same chapter. You are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. Again, they're like, no, we are not. Rome is the light of the world. Rome sits on a hill. Rome is where the rules are made, where the power is. That's where Caesar sits. We're not the light of the world. We're just peons out here in the middle of the desert. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus, no one's paying attention to our good deeds. But Jesus differs with their thoughts. When people see how you treat the sick, when people see how you treat women, when people see how you treat children, when you love the poor, when you love your enemies, when you put others first, we will glorify our Father and change the world. And folks, the you in this passage is not me. It's us. It's all of us. It's not just me. It's all of us. We are the caretakers of the church for the next generation. We are. And my question for you and for myself is, what am I going to do with it, the church? Am I just going to take from it what I can get from it? I'm reminded of the words of, where, uh, of um, Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life. Very first part of the book, it opens up with, it's not about me. Is that the way we look at church? That it's all about me? Or it's not about me? Are we just taking from the church? Will we leave it sidelined in mothballs, ineffectual, because we have taken from it, but we have not made sure that it's there for the next generation? Or will we engage it? You know, I told you this series is partly based on our mission statement. And that's last week we talked about being transformed. Another part of our mission statement is be engaged. Will we engage in it to make sure that the church still engages the conscience of our community and our nation? Are we going to do that? 
And as we talk about our church engaging, we talk about us engaging, I want to share with you a few things that I've been sharing with the leadership of the church and I've been sharing with our staff. You can call it vision if you like. We obviously want to continue what we were doing, all those good things that you, that you saw in the slideshow. But I think there's some other things that God has laid on my heart. And the big question I think God has had me struggling with really for two or three years now is how can we make a bigger impact on our immediate community? How, how can we do that? I feel like for a, a good part of the last decade, we've been putting a lot of foundational pieces in place. And I feel like for the most part, we're, we're kind of have finished that for the most part. But now, now what's next? How can we impact our community and our world more? And I just want to mention some things that, that God has laid on my heart. One thing that we were talking about doing is having some summer interns. We've kind of talked about this for several years, and we're just never able to find the funds for it. But we have it in the budget for this year to hire two summer interns that would be assigned to some different ministries of the church. And we would remodel this white house that's right over here for them to, to, to house them. And obviously, summer interns would have an impact on the ministry of our church and our community. But it's not just that. These ministry students would, could take their experiences and the things that they learned at Burning Bush Baptist Church to wherever they go in life, to wherever they minister, and we would have a part in that. So that's the first one. Second is this. And somebody was actually talking to me about this right before the, the service started. I just have this burden for all these parachurch organizations that do so many great things in our community. But yet, they just always are struggling financially. You know, they're doing golf tournaments, they're doing banquets, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, FCA and uh, Chattanooga Youth Network and Young America. And, and, you know, occasionally we take offerings and stuff for them, special offerings. But what if we did something bigger than that? What if we took, for lack of better term, some kind of community blessing offering we vetted these organizations out beforehand how many ever we think we could we could help with and then we took an offering and we were able to bless those organizations with some extra finances we do a, a, a annie armstrong easter offering here and that's great and wonderful we do a lottie moon christmas offering and that's great and wonderful not going to stop doing those but for the most part those, those don't affect our immediate community. This would be something that would target our community and would be a blessing to those groups. Thirdly, we've been putting the foundational pieces in place to uh, live stream our services, and we're almost done with that. And when you start live streaming Facebook or whatever it is, the outreach potential is just unlimited. Fourthly, we want to continue to expand our small groups, and we're, we're trying to come up with some creative ways for maybe folks that, that don't fit in kind of the time slots that we have right now. And so we're kind of looking at that. Fifthly, we want to continue to make improvements on our buildings. Buildings are just tools. That's all they are. They're a tool. You guys are the church. The building is not a tool. 
but it is an important tool that we can use effectively. You know, we've done a lot of work out here in the welcome centers and the wheelchair ramps and the flooring down the hallway and stuff. We want to continue that flooring into some of those classrooms. There's a number of other smaller projects. We're also, uh, hopefully in the near future, we'll have an awning, another additional awning built out over here by the welcome center. And those are just things that are coming up kind of uh, hopefully in the real near future. Lastly, we have begun just very, very initial discussions about either updating or, or building a sanctuary. And let me emphasize that we are in the very, very early stages. For those of you who weren't here when we built the, what we refer to as the B3 building, uh, when we built that, there, there's a footprint in front of that building for a new sanctuary. That's, that's why the parking lot sits so far away from the building. Because that grassy area there is a footprint for a new sanctuary. And there's a few uh, foundational things that are already done there that were put in place uh, back when we uh, built that building. And uh, so that's, that's one option is to build a completely new sanctuary. It would be an, an expensive option. Other options include renovating this sanctuary. And those go from the very simple of uh, a new flooring and maybe getting control of the lighting a little better, paint, uh, maybe chairs instead of uh, pews because you can add about 20% capacity to your seating if you use chairs instead of pews. And almost everybody, once they get used to them, says chairs are a lot more comfortable than pews. We'd go out on the front deck here. You know, let's face it, when, when you, the front porch here, when you drive up to our church, it screams 1970 with those, those white collars. I'm just I'm being honest, right? And, uh, you know, maybe modernizing it with some new materials and stuff, closing it in. So that those are some options, maybe in phases or something. And I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and praying about that. And there are days that I'll just come in and I'll sit right here on the front. And I'll pray about it and I'll look around and I'll think about different things. And I was doing that one day and I just had the thought, what, what's something we could do that would just be totally out of the box? Because I'd had some other crazy ideas. And it was like, God just kind of hit me with this idea, and I'm not saying it's the way to go, but, it, but it's interesting. What if we flipped the auditorium? So the balcony goes back here, the stage goes up there, you close in that porch area out there with new materials, make it look a lot more contemporary, it allows you to expand your auditorium a little bit, and it makes things flow right. Your bathrooms are where they're supposed to be. I mean, right now, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom, you have to walk up front here during the service, or you have to go underneath and walk forever. It puts the welcome center in the right place. It makes the whole church flow the right direction. I mean, it just does a lot of things. So in July, I met with an architect. Didn't pay a dime. We just, did, we just had a meeting. And uh, so he and I were kicking around different ideas. And then I said, hey, I've got this crazy idea. You might laugh at me. I said, what if we flipped the auditorium? And he kind of paused and kind of looked around, and he goes, that's actually a pretty good idea. And he said, it might not cost as much as you think it would. I have no idea what that means, but that's what he said. I don't know what cost in his mind. But anyway, so we're hoping maybe in the very near future to get some conceptual drawings of what that might look like, just so that we can start being able to, to think about some different options and, and whatever option we decide to pursue. So those are just a few of the ideas as we look to the future. But I want to kind of come back to the message. 
2,000 years ago, Christ launched something for the ages, his church. 150 years ago, almost, not quite, in two years, it'll be 150 years, a group of people that you and I have never met over near Gordon Lee Mills started Burning Bush Baptist Church to minister to their community, to this nation, and to this world. And through the years, different generations have been the stewards and caretakers of this church. You and I are now in that position. Stewards of God's work in this church. And against all odds, Big C Church has changed the world. And with your help, Burning Bush Baptist Church can continue to make a change in that community, our community, the nation, and the world. So here's what I'm inviting you to do, what I am challenging you to do. Paul wrote to the Corinthians at the end of 1 Corinthians. He said, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Stand firm. Don't let anything move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Always give yourself to God's work. Why? Because you know that your labor will not be in vain. Because you know what you are doing when you are serving God. That it is not in vain. Those were the words that Paul gave to the Corinthians. And they took him up on those words. And because they took those words to heart, we are here today. And our labor, our service, will decide who is here next. And our, our labor will determine what the church looks like for the next generation. And we do that when we embrace the command of Jesus, you are to love as I have loved you. Not how you are loved, not how you want to be loved, but when you love other people the way that I loved you. And the morning after he said those words, he made the greatest demonstration of love that this world has ever seen, and the world has never been the same. For all of us, engage. We have been given the opportunity of a lifetime. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as I look out this morning over all these people who love your church, and Father, just so many wonderful things as we looked at in the beginning that we can just see your hand and lives being changed and, and things happening. But Father, help us not to be content. Help us not to be satisfied. Help us to not rest on our press clippings or our laurels. Help us not to do that. I mean, there are 60,000 people roughly in this community, in this county. And what, three, four, five thousand people are going to go to church this morning? Help us to see the need to spread your good news and help us to be part of, of influencing this community and our nation for you. And God, I just pray this morning just on an individual level 
you just challenge every person. And I don't know what that challenge looks like for anybody but me. But Father, I just ask that you challenge other people. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.